that one. That's fine. Do we need anyone to warm the audience up with? <laughs> I went to the Johnny Carson show many, many years ago uh, in, uh, I think, yeah, we're in Las Vegas or something, and I had never experienced it before, but you sit in this large room and this guy comes out and he starts to pump the audience like, you really got to be excited here. You know, when Johnny comes out, I want you to just light this building up. Um, that's not going to happen tonight, okay? <laughs> uh, we'll have, we have a different approach uh, this evening. Um, I'm, am I to wait for Hal, or, or should I just... Uh, we're good now. Okay, we're good. My name is Victor Vigiani, and uh, I am the news director for Zeland Communications, as uh, Chris uh, pointed out to you. Uh, that's a news organization that works uh, right across Canada to bring the, the news of what this strange phenomenon is all about. And uh, we try as best we can to interact and engage mainstream media to recognize that there is something going on on the planet they have to pay attention to. And uh, they've been doing a, a, a better job at it now than they did when I first started. Uh, as a matter of fact, today I was, I was picking someone up from the airport, and we're driving the car, and we get a call from CBC right on my cell phone. We're driving along, and I'm trying to negotiate on the 427 in, in Toronto, and, and this man starts to talk to me from CBC. He's a very interested journalist on one of the, uh, the major CT, or, uh, CBC uh, television programs. He starts asking me all these questions about, is there a cover-up? So I said to him, does an accordion player wear rings, you know? <laughs> There's no other answer to that question. And he went on and on and just really, and what amazed me about it is the, 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 the paucity, the, 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 the virginness of his understanding of what this whole thing was all about. Very intelligent man, no doubt about it. But just did not have a single clue as a journalist about what is going on in, uh, in, in the stuff that you and I live and breathe virtually every single day. And if you're like me, it's exactly what happens. And then when you see a, 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 you know, a, a movie like you just did today, you get to realize that we are, we are part of a reality that a, a large number of the rest of the planet just doesn't get. They just don't get it. And I think we've made some really good inroads in, in trying to have them come to an understanding that there's something going on. And the nature of that different reality is couched in all kinds of different language, different experiences, and I think the, uh, you know, what uh, Travis's movie just showed you today was that this is part of us as humanity. And I uh, was making the point uh, on, on Saturday at the, at the uh, UFO hearing that we're having in, uh, in Brantford that I feel, and the kind of experiences that Travis has been through and the many experiencers that have had uh, these different kinds of things happen to them, that we, in fact, whether we realize it or not, and I've really grappled with the issue, that everything that's happening is pointing to the fact that we, as a species, are on the threshold of the next step in our evolution because of the contact. That's what, to me, that's what it means. We are engaging these, whoever these people are, or these beings are, and it represents the next step in our evolution. Where we go with it, how we handle it, who the heck knows. But the fact of the matter that they're here, we just have to deal with it. It's up to us to deal with it. It's not up to the government to tell us what it's all about. It really isn't. I mean, I, I firmly believe the, the idea of disclosure is important. The government acknowledging what's going on. But as soon as we start asking the government, we're going cap in hand to the government, say, would you please tell us the story, please? No, that's not how this works. So I think we really have to do this on our own. And the kinds of things that are happening to the, the contactees, or the experiencers, whatever you want to call them, um, is something that represents contact. We are being contacted. The contact has already happened. Let's face it. Contact has been made. It's just that the rest of the humanity is not up to speed on this. And it's up to us doing the kinds of things we're doing today, the things that are going to happen at the hearing on Saturday, and all the other really great things that are happening across the planet. As far as awakening people, it's up to us to let humanity know that there is something going on. So that's part of this evening, and we want to engage uh, both Travis <coughs> and Richard Dolan and sort of uh, pick their brains and have them sort of you know, share some of the, the more intimate ideas uh, that they've been associated with for a number of years. And there's no way that we can encapsulate it all in one evening, but we'll try our best. So if we could, I'd ask you to, if you want to have a, uh, an, an opportunity to speak to or ask a question of either Richard or, or, or Travis, we ask you to come to the mic. I'll set this back up. And we don't want to line this way because the, the, the traffic will sort of block the camera. So if you could stand maybe off to one side or, and then respect the persons that are up here and have them ask their question, um, engage for a minute, two minutes, keep your questions you know, brief. 
um, and then we just go forward with a nice, um, open, honest, and, uh, and comfortable dialogue with two very, very special people. Okay, so any, I guess that's where it's going to go, okay? <laughs> All right, let's put the mic back and we'll get going. And anybody want to start? Who wants to be the, Sid's hand is up. That means something. Okay, Sid Goldberg. Welcome to you both. Uh, Travis's question's for you. And the question is, um, many of us are familiar with your experience as it happened. And I'm curious to know, what has happened since then to you, if anything, that is a continuation of that experience? Um, I, I get that question about every time I, I uh, go anywhere. And uh, uh, my standard answer used to be, well, if anything more happened, I wouldn't tell anybody. but. That was with the exception of, if I can document it, I can talk about anything I can document. So uh, there was one uh, pretty dramatic thing that happened uh, just two or three years ago. Um, <clears throat> there was a MUFON meeting uh, in Burbank, and uh, the head of MUFON, uh, Jan Harzen, was speaking, and Tracy Torme, the screenwriter on Fire in the Sky, was there. And uh, when we left, we were driving up the 5 uh, freeway towards the 10 to come back to Arizona. And we saw these three lights coming towards us, and it became quite apparent we were looking at one of those giant black triangles. I mean, it was so low and so huge, it was just astonishing that something that big, uh, you know, could be over a city like Los Angeles. Uh, and, you know, the traffic on the freeway wouldn't be stopping. On, but it came right over and stopped right over us. And to me, you know, this thing was so huge. It was, you know, bigger than a Walmart. You know, maybe, you know, it could be a quarter mile across. It was very low and very close. And I could see in detail these lights at each point of the triangle. Um, it didn't uh, look like a mere light fixture. It looked like some kind of what would probably be propulsion because it was a sort of a shimmering effect to it. It was a sort of a peach colored, sort of a light orange color, but sort of, you know, shimmering the way a flame would if you were looking straight into a jet engine or looking at the burner on a gas stove. But um, you could see that, but when it uh, changed direction, it actually rotated. These three lights switched like that and then headed off towards the coast. Well, my son was driving. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was in the back. She could look up through the glass and see the surface of this thing. And uh, It was just so dramatic. When we got home, my older son, uh, that one wasn't with us, uh, found a website that I had been unaware of. It's called ufostalker.com. They have it set up where they have maps and little circles with numbers in them for all the different sightings. Uh, and there was, uh, you know, over a dozen sightings the very next morning uh, of people who had found that website and reported it. So there was a great deal of corroboration there. So that, <laughs> feel free to talk about that uh, as a subsequent sighting. Uh, <clears throat> my own theory is that this could be some secret uh, um, military craft of some kind. I was going to ask, how long did that experience last, and um, w was there any electronic interference in your vehicle and any missing time? Uh, no, uh, we did not notice any missing time. Uh, we definitely questioned that, but you know, we went through a time zone to get back to Arizona, and so we figured that one out. But. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, there was no uh, apparent interference with the uh, vehicle, uh, and uh, it was just, you know, just came right at us, came and stopped right over the top, turned, and went off. But uh, very dramatic, very unmistakable. Richard, did you want to comment on that in terms of the, the triangle aspect of it and technology? Sure. I mean, the uh, triangles have been seen very regularly. Uh, in high numbers since the mid-1970s, although sightings actually go back even earlier than that. Um, I, don't, I don't know what Travis saw, to be honest with you. Um, I do know the black triangles have been seen very with crystal clarity in the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, 
I didn't know about your sighting, Travis. I personally investigated a case that took place in Kingston, Ontario, uh, 2003, and uh, I got to know that witness very well. It was like a sister to me now, I guess. That, tri that was a perfect black triangle uh, with sharp corners, lights at each corner, very low, totally silent. And uh, this witness got a very excellent look at it. Excellent. One of the most conscientious people I, I think I could ever know. I think it's a good sighting. Um, and then you find the, so someone is flying these things. And the, the real question is, uh, I'm glad we're doing this, this media thing on Saturday because honestly, it seems to me the important question is, the first question is not so much who is flying these things, but can we really, the question is, can we please have an open public discourse on this because someone is flying these black triangles. They're not supposed to exist. They, um, they're using something other than gasoline to go from point A to point B. And whatever that is, is important for our society and for mm -hmm. our civilization, if nothing yeah. else. Well, yeah, I, I make the point in any presentations that I do that, you know, these, these craft, wherever they're from or whatever their, their nature is, they're not stopping off at Jupiter to fill up with SO gas. The action's going on here on Earth. That's right, exactly. So whatever, whatever we've got going on here, we've got this amazing planet. We've got all this water. We've got all these minerals and all these crazy people, all these life forms. Why would they not be interested in looking at us? So, and, you know, so there's going to be, I think, a lot of activity and observation and interaction. Yeah. In terms of, of, you know, what you saw and what you've investigated and what a lot of us have seen before, one of the questions that I have is, it really perplexes me is, is why they're being so elusive. I mean, they, they, they come and go and they show themselves in ways that they, it's like a, almost like a game of hide and seek. I mean, not that I would want them to do this, but I mean, why wouldn't they pick a Super Bowl Sunday? I mean, I, I mean you know, it sounds naive, I, I, I realize that, but the fact of the matter is the elusive nature of what they're doing and the way they, they come and go with impunity in our, in our atmosphere you would figure that, okay, well, do we have an agenda here to make sure that uh, we kind of just give them a peek? Because if we did something really, really demonstrative in terms of, you know, over Times Square or the Super Bowl or whatever, then we give away the whole enchilada. And I don't know if that's what they really want to do. Comment? Well, that's, that's yeah. my theory, you know, that uh, it's obviously not, oops, we accidentally got seen. I believe that with their technology, they could... Uh, do everything they're doing here and remain completely undetected if that was their desire. But at the same time, they're not landing openly and saying, here we are. So it is my theory that it's a kind of a conditioning and they always want to stop short of that point where it causes the kind of havoc that would happen. I would just uh, add a speculation that my personal opinion that um, they, they're operating on a level beyond what, what we can do. and you know, our perception of reality is, is, has its limits. Uh, it, would be like, it would be like dogs trying to understand where humans go when we dr pull out of the driveway and go to work. You know, can you imagine dogs having conferences and talking amongst themselves like, where, where do my people go? They, it, just like, I feel like that's us trying to figure them out. Like, they're operating at a different understanding of, of space and time reality. I think they can enter and leave it and um, so, and, uh, but I, I agree with Travis, like there's, I think, they, if they did not want to be seen, they would never be seen. Well, I have a border collie, and I know when I leave in the morning, he has a group after, trying to find out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I figure this dog, if he has an opposable thumb, he could do all my typing for me. Leslie. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Victor, and uh, thank you, Travis, and Richard, we're so happy you're here. Um, my name is Leslie Mitchell-Clark, and I am a certified clinical hypnotherapist who specializes in working with experiencers and contactees, and I'm really only one of a handful of uh, MUFON certified people who are doing this kind of work. So my question would be uh, for you, Travis. Most people, when they come to me to look at an experience, come with fragmented conscious memories, usually of one incident. And when we get in there with proper hypnosis techniques, generally we find that there is a pattern of experience that has begun oftentimes very early in childhood. Do you feel now in the fullness of time since your profound experience that it was 
an isolated event, kind of a wrong place, wrong time type of thing? Or do you feel that you, in fact, may have even more experiences from your earlier life that you may not have yet explored or even been aware of? Well, I've always, uh, you know, gone with the explanation that this was just uh, something out of the blue that just, um, you know, uh, you know, really wouldn't even been as extensive as it was mm -hmm. if I hadn't done something kind of unexpected there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, of course you look back and you think about things from all the way back to childhood and, you know, there's, you know, some incidents that I wonder about that, mm -hmm. uh, um, it could have been something, but, mm -hmm. you know, you're just a child, you know, how do you know? Did you have more than one session with the eminent psychiatrist that you mentioned that you had worked with as far as hypnosis? Uh, I only underwent the hypnosis one time mm -hmm. with Dr. Herter. Okay, all right. I, I had a th I, Travis and I once shared a, uh, it's like a seven-hour car ride across the state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> do you remember that? Yeah. In fact, you told me what was wrong with my front right uh, yeah. axle there thing. I, yeah. I had some kind I of problem going. Car. <laughs> it, my Diagnosed car was in bad shape. Mm -hmm. But but during that, I if you remember, I actually we were kicking. I was kicking around a theory about Travis's abduction, and I just wanted to like put this out there because um, it does seem like it's a freak thing, you know, wrong place, wrong time. But if you know Travis, and you can really tell, like Travis is. He's really not a normal guy. Like he's very, he's, he's not. He's, he, he, he pretends he is, but he's actually super intelligent, mm -hmm. very like deeply thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is like, you know, he's this young guy in his truck with these six other guys. I don't know the other guys Travis worked with, but I'm gonna take a guess that he was even then like operating at a different level, mm -hmm. I, my theory. And, and I really wondered, I, I know I asked you this, like when that craft appeared and you just got out of the car, like, were you, were you being guided? It's totally possible because during these UFO encounters that people have, they, people don't often act in normal ways. No. They don't have nor, nor, normal emotional responses. Right. Sometimes it's like this complete fear factor, mm -hmm. panic. Sometimes it's like this ridiculous calm that doesn't make sense either. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I mean, I could never speak for you, Travis, but I have to admit, like, this is, I've often wondered, and I don't know if, what you think well, about Well, you know, I was kind of impulsive. I did, you know, things <laughs> that were uh, wild and crazy guy kind of a thing, you know, uh, roping horses, you know, the wild horses, you know, stuff, you know, stuff that, you know, good common sense would, uh, uh, you know, kind of make you not do. But, you know, Alan was a uh, you know he said to him it looked like I was in some kind of a trance like I was being mm -hmm. pulled towards it and Steve you know said he thinks they were after me but you know to me it just seemed like my own wild impulse to get yeah. out and run over there yeah. but then they say but they can make you think it's your idea you know so Indeed. Uh, the jury's out that way but to me it just felt like my own impulse to yeah. go see it up close before it took off and I was thinking it would leave before I got that close. Wow. Well if you ever want to explore anything further you know where to go. <laughs> <laughs> We're here. Okay thank you so much. Thank you. Okay next question. Go ahead. My name is Janet King. Um, I'm a new MUFON member so I'm thrilled to be here with you folks. This is just an experience. My question is, um, from your experience, do, have you had any uh, indication that you may have received an implant of any kind? The reason I ask is when you were talking about your experience with the hovering triangle, it sort of reminded me how, you know, that we put collars on caribou and, you know, and we fly over and we sort of monitor where they are, even though we don't interfere with them, we kind of monitor. And I wondered if you'd had any indications possibly that... Uh, well, you know, I don't know that the implants are tracking devices, but, you know, it was something I was really worried about and uh, uh, for some time afterwards, but I had upper body x-rays, okay. a whole battery of medical tests actually in the, in the following days. But th there wasn't anything that I could detect uh, being there. Okay. But some people think they can track people without a device, so I don't know. Yeah. Good. Thank you. 
Another question? Anywhere? At the back of the room? Yes, come forward. Uh, question for, for you, Travis. Uh, you, your town, Snowflake, I believe it was called, a uh, very religious town. Were you religious before? Uh, maybe based on your last answer, probably not, but I'd like to hear a little bit about it. Um, were you a believer in, in this phenomenon before? Uh, and what was that transition like for you uh, afterwards when you, uh, when you came back? Well, I didn't become more or less religious. I, I've always considered myself to be a spiritual sort of person and uh, a very philosophical person. So um, I, I don't think it, uh, it narrowed that perspective at all. I think in a, in a way it broadened it. And, and, you know, people who think that the reality of this phenomenon in some way uh, diminishes uh, religion, uh, I don't think that's the case at all, you know. And uh, uh, I could I could go a lot further into that, but uh, did, you, um, did you say diminishes religion? I didn't. You said no, I you, said you don't. You don't think no, it does. No, it did not okay. diminish. Okay. I think it expanded my perspective in terms of you know, people think well if it's not in the Bible then it can't exist, and uh, I say well Antarctica's not in the Bible, then we know it exists. And Native Americans aren't in the Bible, so. You know, I, 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 I think that people who have that perspective are selling God short. That, uh, you know, what is there about all-powerful and all-knowing that you don't understand, you know? So it's a, it's a much bigger universe than they conceive of. Uh, hi, Richard. Hi, uh, Travis. My name's Dashiell. Um, just in a sense, when you got your memories back, uh, I know, like you said, like things were really blurry. But um, the, the uh, extraterrestrials that you saw and the triangle that you saw, did it look anything similar to the Dr. Jonathan Reed case? I'm not too familiar with uh, the Reed case. And, um, you know, in the opening pages of my book, I, I quote Emerson, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. Because I took such great exception, like the, the, the UFO skeptic that was attacking us, his first writings had us as three people riding in a car rather than seven men in a truck. I mean, he was that vague on the details and he was already in attack mode. So I have always, you know, stuck by the idea that I'm not going to comment on other cases unless I've thoroughly investigated them myself. And uh, that's... Uh, Richard's territory. He's he's the investigator. So um, I just have a big mouth. That's really <laughs> all that I do. That's about it. Next question. Hi, my name is Elle. Um, it's very nice to meet you in person. Uh, so my question is kind of twofold. Just going back to the uh, triangular crafts. I did read online that those tend to be um, reverse engineered and they belong to the um, like black ops government. Mm -hmm. And the second question is just a comment. Um, the second question is, um, w do you know, statistically speaking, what is the most common type of craft that is uh, seen by people? Yeah, I'll field that one. So regarding your uh, first point on the black triangles, there's absolutely a tremendous amount of uh, discussion about these being reverse engineered craft. I personally believe that they are. Uh, although I don't think exclusively. Is this microphone working? Okay. Um, so for example, um, I, I'll just mention, I haven't published this anywhere, but I've talked occasionally. I had, I had a very detailed conversation with a retired Boeing engineer uh, about a year and a half ago at this point. He um, retired about in 2000 or so, and I know him and his wife. He's very, very intelligent, lovely people. He uh, was very explicit with me that Boeing was reverse engineering black triangles from extraterrestrial technology in the 1980s and 90s. There's a lot that he did not know. Uh, his, his claim to me was that there was a lot they had not mastered in terms of the technology and that they were losing pilots and losing craft. So if, if he's accurate, and I mean, there could be other uh, organizations replicating these too, but in the case of Boeing, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense to me that all the black triangles would be theirs because my impression from him is that they hadn't really mastered it. There's the talk about the TR-3A and the TR-3B, the Black Manta. Uh, we don't know for sure, but they probably exist, something like that. But also, uh, 
you know, there are very excellent triangle sightings that go really far back, actually. I, uh, I'm the publisher, not the author, but the publisher of a book on, black, on, on triangles by a fellow named David Marler. And his work is excellent, and he really shows this phenomenon goes way back, at least as far back as the, the flying saucers themselves. Not as many, but they're out there. So I think the jury's out. I think that uh, I think some of these triangles are not all ours. That's my own opinion. As far as the most common sightings, uh, if you go online to the National UFO Reporting Center, it's an easy site to go to. And in fact, what's great about it is that uh, he breaks it down among other things, like by date, but also by shape. And um, I'm trying to recall, triangles are a common one, but the most common is typically a bizarre light in the sky. And you also see a lot of, cir a lot of circular spherical um, and triangles and disc shaped. I'm not sure today in what order, to be honest with you. I should check myself. They're all out. They're all being seen. I, before the next question, I'd like to share an experience that I had. <clears throat> in 1996, my partner and I went down to, um, actually we drove through New Mexico and Nevada and, and all that area, and Dulce and all, and we spent six nights just outside of Area 51. Three nights, one at one point, and we drove across back to New Mexico, to New Mexico and then came back for another three nights, literally right outside uh, on, on Groom Lake Road, camping out. And as we're driving along... Um, uh, Highway 375 uh, in the Tickaboo Valley. So you're going kind of, I guess you're going sort of southwest. And um, my wife noticed over the mountains at the, at the time, Victor, there's something going on over the mountains. So I stopped the car and I got out of the car and I looked over the car, the hood of the, the roof of the car, and over the mountains. And um, up above me, right about that angle, there was this really, really, it was a beautiful night out, very, just, just before dark, just before dark. Very few, uh, you know, a lot of stars in the sky, but there was this bright light about a third of the size of the sun, or this, uh, the moon. And it, it just looked bizarre. It was just really, really, really bright blue-white. And as I looked at it, it became very diaphanous. It became like a, a snowflake. It just sort of expanded and pulsed in and pulsed out. Pulsed in, pulsed out. It, it began to look like a snowflake. You could almost see right through it. And then it started to spin very, very slowly, and then more quickly, and then more quickly, and it began to spin very, very quickly, and then it stopped spinning, and at that point, the thing turned into three dots, three orange dots in a triangle shape. And it just turned from white into these three dots. I, and I was just looking, I, I just could not believe my eyes. And at that point, those three dots began to spin even faster and faster and faster, and in a really, really quick fashion, it coalesced back into the white dot, and it went, bang it just flipped right out and I stood there over the car I was just nonplussed I could not believe what I saw and it took I would say I don't know a minute and a half that's a long time mm -hmm. I mean, when you take a look at something so what kind of uh, you know of engineering would they have put forward in order to have something some physical thing do that kind of uh, you know, maneuver. I, I would have no I, idea. I would just add, you know, back in the 1980s, all right, there was an aerospace journalist named James Goodall. Probably some people know this name. He's a, he wasn't a UFO guy. He was an aviation aerospace journalist. And he, uh, but he happened to cultivate a number of sources in Groom Lake, which is, you know, part next to Area 51, basically. And one of these guys, he said, had about 11 years experience working on black projects at Groom. And Goodall asked him point blank, are there UFOs? The guy says, absolutely, yes, they exist. But then he was talking, and, and the implication that I, I, I've always gotten is that UFOs that we did not make. But, but then this guy also said, exact quote, according to Goodall, we have things in the Nevada desert that would make George Lucas envious. So this is like 1985. So, and then you get these leaks that there's quite a few of these that point to super advanced, unbelievably advanced uh, human technology that presumably is derived from something that we didn't create, but that we have gone really far. There's the story of this uh, so-called ARV, the Alien Reproduction Vehicle. That's from 1988. That's also what going back. And I, I believe this story. Um, and essentially it's a uh, uh, in a hangar at Lockheed Hellendale facility, a, a 
witness, a very excellent witness, saw three, okay, large, medium, and small size acorn-shaped type flying saucer type things, and they were, they were hovering. No cables were suspending them. They were just there. A four-star general was at a podium describing these as alien reproduction vehicles, stating that they had gone throughout the solar system. This is 1988. So if this is true, and again, you know, you can believe it or not, I, I think I believe it. That would indicate we've, we've got a classified technology that's been off the charts for decades. Yeah, the, the, the stealth bomber, when it was unveiled, was actually 30-year-old technology at that point. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, even if one-tenth of what you're describing is true, I mean, it, there's got to be something to this. Go ahead. Uh, welcome to Toronto, Richard and Travis. Victor. <laughs> My name is Michel Deschamps, and I'm uh, the creator of uh, an historical website from up north in Sudbury, which is basically a tribute to all the research that's been done in the past. Um, two questions, one for each of you. Uh, in 1993, I got a hold of Travis. I, remember, I don't know if you remember that phone call. I, I, had your, I got your number from Stanton Friedman, and <laughs> he told me not to hand it out. And uh, I had asked you a question, I think, about the texture of the skin, because I was wondering if you had pushed one of the beings back and how it felt. And uh, for Richard, uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that landing cases and sightings of humanoids seem to have dwindled in recent years? Well, uh, I described the feeling of my forearm contacting one of these small creatures and that it was softer and lighter than I expected, but I didn't actually touch their skin. Now, the skin did have a very soft, uh, translucent look, uh, like there was a lot of moisture there, but not wet on the surface, if you understand. And um, what was the other part of the question? Um, uh, well, also, also, I wanted to know if, uh, well, that was basically the question, what the, what the texture was. Uh -huh. And uh, the fact that you're, you're, you're in your case, which is unlike the movie Fire in the Sky, you actually encountered human-looking beings. Yeah, which is something very and, important that you and they felt very much. They felt very dense and very strong, and you know I was in a weakened condition, but in spite of that, I could feel they were much stronger than I was, and I was in pretty good shape at the time. Do you mean do you mean physically stronger? Yeah. Uh, I'll just try to answer your question as well, Michelle. I think uh, yeah. First of all, there's a very uh, long modern history, I guess we could say, of, of humanoid type creatures being seen in conjunction with landed. So a lot of them in the 1950s in Europe, in particular 1954, many, uh, really well attested. And then uh, throughout the 50s and 60s and throughout the 70s, the last big major wave of those, I believe, was 1978, long time ago, uh, where you got actually hundreds of such cases in that year. So. Now, they're actually, I, I don't know that they've all stopped. There were, I came across a few that were even in China in the 1980s. Um, but I think you're right. Like, by and large, you don't really hear these sightings. What you do hear that nowadays are sightings by people of what appear to be hybrids or humans, not in conjunction with landings for the most part. I don't know that they've gone away entirely, but I, I have to agree with you that they don't seem to get the attention. And I, I, really, I don't really know why, to be honest with you. When, when you look at the ones from the 50s and 60s, there's a, somewhat of a consistency in their description. They're short, kind of large heads. Not like the greys, though, but similar in a way. Um, what, what's baffling about this phenomenon, it's actually maddening to me, is the total variety that people see. So there was a case in the early 1970s in the U.S., 1973, where um, two men saw this creature that was like out of some sci-fi horror movie, you know, where they were floated into a craft. And, and they were very credible people. So some of these creature sightings are just really... So I wonder one of a couple of things. One is that... Um, there's some pretty wild genetic experimentation gun on these creatures, <laughs> which actually re really would make sense to me. 
Yeah. I wouldn't expect any of these to be naturally occurring creatures. Mm. None of them. I would expect all of them to be artificially created. I mean, just look where we are with our own ability to, uh, you know, genetic manipulation yeah. and nanotech. And, and then the other thing that I might expect is that they might be holographic projections or mind projections. I mean, there's, this, yeah. this phenomenon is maddening to me because I have not found one single explanation that actually truly accounts for every crazy thing about it. Yeah. I mean, Jacques Vallée once said, if this were as simple as uh, beings coming from another planet in metal spaceships, like how disappointing that would be because there's so much strangeness yeah. that just goes beyond our understanding. And uh, I'm not, I, honestly, I've thrown myself into this and I, I don't know if I'll ever really get to the bottom of it myself. Yeah. I enjoy trying. Not, <laughs> Same here, because I, I, I investigated a landing case on Manitoulin Island in 1990. Well, actually, I got there in 91. And uh, people were saying it's, it was a hoax. I went to the property, the actual site, and it's actually like one quarter mile into the woods in a clearing surrounded by trees. So by the main road, you couldn't see it from the main road. If it hadn't been a hoax, I would have placed it alongside the road. And uh, yeah. I actually know two or three people that personally had encounters with aliens. Like, I either saw them through a telescope, through... At a and that was in 1990? The, the, the landing case in Manitoulin was 1990. It took place in mid-September, and I got there in June of 91, and it still survived. It survived one winter, and then it subsequently went back. It was just uh, a layer, of three-quarter inch layer of gravel on a large 80-foot, 90-foot diameter surface of limestone, and the gravel was blown away, leaving two donut-shaped indentations. And I spoke to Ted Phillips about that, and he says that's typical of a small craft. And obviously right. there was two crafts there because I thought initially there was one craft that left, you know, something blue from underneath. But uh, he didn't think that made sense either. Uh, and uh, being there, uh, when you're actually at a site, it just gives you the eebie-jeebies. <laughs> it's almost like you don't belong there. But you know something happened. And I recently found out that we may have a witness who actually saw the lights descending in the bush that may have caused that. Well, it's always worth looking into. I think yeah. that there are still landing cases, and there are probably sightings, but uh, it is true, they don't really get the attention. And if only 10% of the sightings get reported, 90% go on, 90% go unreported, and so I can't report to the people back home what's the latest sighting if I, they're not reporting to me. No. You know, so that's a problem, too. Thank well, you. maybe a part of the problem is uh, people are asking the wrong question or questions. I mean, they say, what is the alien agenda in the singular? And what is the explanation for this phenomena? I'd say all of the above. I mean, there's, you know, just any, any explanation you come up with, some of it is that, and some of it's not. Um, question here? Travis, hello. Hello. I, uh, this is my first time ever attending to one of these uh, events, but I, I think I want to salute you as an ambassador to the world to share your story because it is fascinating and for you to persevere all these decades uh, demonstrates a commitment, a conviction and perhaps the integrity that I think you deserve when you tell your story. One of the questions that I want to put to you and perhaps the only question uh, is not so much the technology realm but the moments that you were there and I'm not sure about time, how to measure it. You were gone a few hours, perhaps. You thought some people said you were gone five days. But actually, can you sort of encapsulate your emotional state of mind or sense of consciousness and how you had a sense of a social interaction with these beings? In other words, do they have a social dimension? I mean, and, and I understand this whole scenario is one of nervous energy, presumably, and, and you're not... I, I don't know how you can describe, but I, I'm more curious about the beings, their social sense of communication with you. Do you have anything to share with us? Oh, wow. Very good question. <laughs> I, d I don't think I was uh, very conversational. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty much out of my mind with fear and just babbling and raving like a maniac. So I don't think, you know, we could judge too much about their, you know, they definitely seem to be communication amongst the, the, the three uh, what are called greys because they you know acted in concert very uh, co cooperative and and that sort of thing except uh, you know simultaneous motion that kind of thing but 
I didn't hear any talking amongst them. I, I do think they're probably telepathic. And I think that the huge discomfort I felt under their stare was uh, due to them attempting to do something telepathically that wasn't working. Because when that energy hit me, I was, and when I first regained consciousness, I, I believe I was still in a very barely alive state. I felt mortally wounded. And they were still trying to restrain me for my own good, and you know, because I was a threat to them. I was, you know, three times their size. But um, that was very excruciating. So um, I was, I had the chance to meet uh, some of these uh, school kids from that case in Zimbabwe. Uh, there were 60 school children at recess in the middle of a broad daylight. This craft came down and these beings came out and communicated with them through this stare. And so I asked them, did it give you that squirmy, horrible feeling in your head? And they said, no, it was pleasant. The message was friendly and there wasn't that horrible feeling. So that was the reason that was in my nightmares for so long after that was that feeling that it gave me, but it wasn't working. And so I think they gave up on that and, and left. It was at that point that they they you know couldn't get near me. So they, I think, probably enlisted the help of these human-looking beings, somebody that I would trust more and, and uh, finish the repairs. Thank you. Claude Limberger from EarthMysteryNews.com. Uh, thank you for, for showing up. It's, um, you know, telling your story, it's, it's good. Uh, similar question to what was just happening there. Um, on a personal note, I'd like to know if you did feel if there was some sort of like um, empathic ability from these people or was they, were they non-empathic? You know, like did they care about you or did you feel, did you feel like that there was a caring or was it, you know, like they were just, oh, we're just dealing well, with Well, in hindsight, I, I feel that it was caring. Okay. But it took me decades to overcome that feeling of absolute terror that I felt. And that was caused by a whole combination of factors that added to the fear factor over layer upon layer. You know, first of all, the pain I was feeling, the feeling of suffocation more than anything. Um, in the movie, they show the actor being held down on a table, membrane over his face, he's struggling to scream through it, struggling to breathe through it. Well, there was no membrane, but if you had shown the actor just breathing hard and looking panicked, you wouldn't get it. You know, it's, there's nothing like the feeling of suffocation to generate panic. But on top of that, I felt mortally wounded. I felt trapped. It was claustrophobic, dimly lit, to suddenly see these strange beings so close to me. And on top of that, the feeling that I needed to defend myself or to run away and being, feeling like I could barely move. So all those things combined to just push the fear factor, um, you know, over the limit. And... Um, you know, further to the idea that that energy beam hitting me had scrambled the neural circuits to where they couldn't use their normal uh, telepathic control thing is the EEG that I had right after I was returned. The uh, technician was not told who I was. It was I was put in un, under an assumed name and uh, because of all the intense media scrutiny and all this. And this was at a uh, world famous uh, Barrows Neurological uh, Research Hospital there in Phoenix. Uh, uh, the technician noted an, uh, an unusual brainwave pattern. And so uh, we're going to do some follow up research on that. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Kitai, uh, you know, the Phoenix Light uh, doctor has some uh, doctors who are willing to do some follow-up. You know, we're going to repeat it, A, see if that unusual pattern is still there, and then have uh, neuroscientists compare this to the kind of pattern you would get from somebody who had been hit by lightning or had been electrocuted or something like that. So there's a lot of follow-up here on that particular question. But um, I really think that was probably why it wasn't working out there, that, that crazy uh, hysterical. Well, just to follow up, did, who, when you saw the beings and their interactions, 
who would you say was in charge? Was it the human-like beings or the, the smaller ones? I get that question. It's a good question. And I wondered, because my own speculation at first was that this was an intervention by these human-looking people, that, that these smaller creatures had done something that they shouldn't, and they were uh, taking me back from them. But um, now, you know, after, you know, decades of uh, musing on this, I think that they were probably uh, cooperating in some way. I didn't see them together, so I can't say that there was, uh, you know, for certain what the nature of the relationship was, but probably fortunate in any case because I was returned in one piece and, and healthy. Okay, thank you very much. We just have a few minutes left. It's a little after eight, I think. Uh I'm not sure exactly what the time frame is, Chris, but I just wanted to to, uh, to broach a question. Um, I mean, we're we're all here right now and uh, engaging in this kind of conversation, and I, I wonder to myself quite often a couple of things. Number one is, uh, is this happening anyplace else here tonight in Toronto? Probably not. This is this is a very very unique event, and this this kind of discourse is not happening enough. And I think one of the things that we have to pay attention to, and you know, w with all due respect to the number of people who've had these kinds of experiences, they talk about it openly, they you know, go on to different programs on TV and, and the kinds of things we saw tonight. But my concern is with the unseen and the unheard, the people in the back alleys of Toronto and New York who are suffering from mental illness and who are really struggling in their life and trying to deal with the experiences that we're talking about this evening. And I'm wondering, you know, what your perceptions would be about these, the unseen, the unheard, the people who have no um, outlet to expand upon what they might uh, have under, undergone in the same way that you went through. Uh, I feel very badly for these people, and I, th this was a topic of discussion that I had with Dr. John Mack in 1996. I visited him in his office, and we spoke about that issue of the unseen and the unheard and the children that are going through this. So I'm wondering if... Um, you know, just a comment by each one of you on those two things. Well, I've had people, you know, ask me, you know, how, what was the process like? How do you learn to cope? And, and I've had people ask me to write up what that process was like. And, you know, I, I, at first I resisted the idea, you know, because, you know, every case is different. Every person is going to have their own unique set of uh, problems and things to overcome. But, uh, yeah, you know, there may be some common ground that might help uh, people to understand more of the inward uh, work that I, w I went through all those years. Um. I would, I would add. I, I think that this, this is extremely important. What you're raising here, Victor. Uh, I know for a fact that there are many people in this room because I've spoken to some of you who've had some very bizarre, inexplicable experiences. Maybe it's a majority, for all I know. It's a lot. Uh, when you, uh, when, I, when I scratch the surface of our little culture, I mean, I run into people all the time who have inexplicable experiences. They think they're the only one. They don't know who to talk to. And then they face a culture uh, with media figures like Neil deGrasse Tyson who make fun of them. All right? Uh, whatever you think about this man, he's great, but he makes fun of UFO abductees. And I know because I've heard him say that he's, this is very much beneath him. And it's not just him. This is a major cultural part of our uh, discourse that goes on and it, uh, it's, it's insulting and it's denigrating no matter what is happening to these people. It is sometimes exhilarating but it's sometimes traumatizing because we don't know how to make sense out of it. And what we absolutely need is to know that we're not alone. That's number one. How do we do that? Well, we, we do that because we will do that by having a public discourse that's actually intelligent, mature, that, does, that doesn't sound like we're a bunch of 11-year-olds making fun of things. But the problem is, I believe, we're dominated by a power structure that controls the media for a purpose. The purpose is to keep us infantilized and keep us dumb, keep us separated and atomized. We're dealing with the most unbelievable phenomenon imaginable all by ourselves. That's the reality. So what our job, everyone in this room, our job is to be brave, number one. That means you speak about it. That means you be your own hero and you educate other people about this and, and, um, and just be fearless about it. What I've discovered over these years doing this, when I started researching this years ago, I thought, oh, no one must ever know. And then I discovered, well, you know, I have to tell people. And I realized that people actually are really into it, most, most of them. 
And, but the way is, that what matters is how you do it yourself. So you have to be forthright, you have to know what you're talking about, and, um, and spread the word. I think uh, regarding disclosure, I don't want to do a whole lot to talk about on disclosure, except I firmly believe now that it will only happen when the culture is ready. We have to make the culture ready, and then the politics will follow. And the only way the culture will be ready is by people like us to do everything that we can do. It's, it's a really heroic struggle because we're fighting an institutional structure that just wants to marginalize us. But I think in time we're going to win this one. We have to. We have no choice. Given the reason for this coming Saturday. Uh, Chris, uh, oh, d there's a gentleman behind you. Did he have I'm a I'm actually going to ask oh. a question. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> go. Well, Mr. Ruchak, go right ahead. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, so it just dawned on me. Uh, we're here screening the true story of Travis Walton. Back when Fire in the Sky came out, and it's, it's actually a perfect panel to ask this question. Uh, Victor, with your background in, in the media, and how they control information, Richard, in your historical perspective on things, and Travis, with your experience. I just want each of you to touch on the pros and the cons. Hindsight's always 2020, but on the release of Fire in the Sky, what impact did that have on ufology? What impact did that movie have on popular culture? And if there's both pros and cons to the release of that movie? Well, I'll take that one first. Um, the movie uh, uh, was groundbreaking in that it was the first time Hollywood had ever uh, recounted a real-life event. So, uh, you know, the you know, promotion of the movie and all that was, okay, we'll take this seriously. The downside, of course, was it was a perpetuation of the invading monsters theme, which, you know, was rather consistent the way I interpreted it initially. So, you know... It took me decades to overcome that uh, negative interpretation because of the way fear and pain and all that colored the, the thing. So I think it's helpful to point out the process that I went through to go from looking at it as malevolent to, to seeing it as possibly beneficial. And, uh, you know, Barbara Lamb has uh, recounted that she would um, regress people who initially perceived their entire experience to be negative and then find out that they had had some medical issue uh, resolved or they come to see it in a different light. And um, I compare it to uh, a little child that's taken to the doctor or the dentist and they're screaming, they're terrified and they're traumatized and you're not going to convince them it was for their own good, but you know, we know it was, you know, they got their tooth fixed or their um, injury um, treated and uh, so uh, the negative perception, you know, is something that uh, is, it's only natural, but uh, uh, we can get past that. Uh, I gave a talk uh, to a group of uh, actors, producers, you know, just Hollywood people here uh, a year or so ago. And uh, I was trying to encourage them to look at this as what a wealth of story ideas that there would be potentially with this incredibly, you know, advanced technology to continually go back to invading monsters as the theme, uh, you know, uh, is rather short-sighted, <laughs> unimaginative. You know? Yeah, it's a great question, Chris. Um, I, I agree uh, pretty much with Travis on most of that, um, although I don't really have a personal uh, judgment on whether I think these beings are benign to us or indifferent or even hostile. I, I'm not sure. I think maybe there's a bit of all of that, possibly. But um, I do think, actually, the release of that movie in the early 90s was a very positive thing. Overall, um, as inaccurate as some of, the, some of the portrayal was, we all know. Um, we, you know, you think back on the culture of the early 90s, it was a different situation. And um, it was kind of like the Dark Ages, pre-web, pretty much. And um, there really wasn't a lot of public discussion on this. I know a lot of people who saw that movie, uh, and to this day, they said that was actually a very formative movie for me especially for people like under the age of 40, in particular when they were younger, it really affected them a lot. So I think it's again a case of a great cultural change happening as a result. And I, I think Tracy Torme, the um, producer, is a guy who really, uh, my, I mean, I've met Tracy as well. I think he's a very 
conscientious person who really tried to do a good job within the confines of Hollywood. But um, overall, I, would, I think it had a very positive effect on the culture and getting that conversation out there. Um, I, I'm sort of betwixt, betwixt and between and all of it. Uh, when I saw the movie way back when, I had a certain fixated opinion about how it was portrayed. And I, I have some very strong feelings about that. But I think anything that um, awakens the imagination in the general public, be it positive or negative, um, is, is, is important. It, it, you know, you can talk about people learning something. They learn it in a positive way sometimes. And being a teacher myself uh, for all my career, an, an educator and a principal, you, you get at learners in many, many different ways. You just don't attack learners from one specific point of view. Sometimes you've got to brush the fur the other way. And sometimes you've got to stroke the fur the other way. And I think it's the same thing with the general population. Sometimes you've got to really kind of give them a slap in the face and say, well, another time you have to stroke them. And I think in, in a way that these movies are coming out, I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with uh, the work of Robbie Graham in, um, in, uh, in, the, in the UK. Robbie Graham operates um, a, a fantastic website called Silver Screen Saucers. If you really want to find out what Hollywood is all about, this man has the most incisive perceptions about what Hollywood is doing, what they have done to um, both portray the negative part and the positive, and the whole enchilada. But it, it is his idea about what Hollywood does with respect to this issue is absolutely brilliant. And I think anything that, that awakens the public imagination moves the, the ball up the hill just a bit more. And I think of the movie, you know, Close Encounters. And I think about the guy, you know, putting the mashed potatoes together and, and then the mountain and dumping the stuff out. I mean, you, you go through that emotional process of trying to figure out what's going on in my mind. And I think once every human being on the planet at some point reaches that kind of realization that what's, go what's really going on here? And if we cause that question to be asked in one way or another, I think we're doing a good thing. Yeah, and many people went directly from the movie to looking for the book and trying to get the real story, because most people do realize that when there's a Hollywood dramatization, that, you know, you need to get the book if you want the facts, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, hi, it's uh, uh, Victor Fletcher, uh, Toronto Street News. Uh, I, I was wondering, uh, uh, Travis, uh, uh, we, we like in the paper we would uh, actually teach you remote viewing of a contacts with a lot of psychics in the past and uh, I noticed that uh, you told uh, Richard mentioned you're on a car trip and you told him there was something wrong with the suspension I just wondered if you had picked up any psychic capabilities of any kind <laughs> no that was just a mechanical experience oh, my car all really stopped I diagnosed the ailment and uh, they that's what it was <laughs> so he, he knows cars really well <laughs> you, you didn't know yeah, you, you know ahead of time a flat tires coming no no I, I guess the, the big hint was with Richard having the steering wheel like this for the whole time. <laughs> it was it was embarrassing to be honest with you. My car was that bad. Oh, I see. It was that on. bad. <laughs> we oh. we were wondering if we would make it, but it, we <laughs> made exactly. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple of months ago, I was on the on the. My cousin was a psychic. Came from Australia and telling me about this. She said she saw them in Gu in Gu uh, uh, vehicle in Guelph. So. Uh, she was taken by her, her, uh, her and her boyfriend on the way to Toronto about 30 years ago, you know, and she said they were, they were taken. So there I am in Fergus. I thought, God, I thought I was safe in Fergus, you know. <laughs> but any, anyway, as soon as I got on the highway, I said, okay, so I used, the, I won't say all the language. I said, okay, where, where the F are you guys then? And, and about, about 10 minutes later, I was kind of, I kind of like, I came to a, I'm, I'm driving a, driving a car, like, wh where am I? It was like, a, it was like, it was like what ha what happened? You know, I was safe on the road and I was dr driving like not normal, but but it was like a, I wasn't there for a while. Th thank you very much. I think we've pretty well uh, run out the string here. I want to thank you all. Oh, one more question. Okay, sure. By all means. Oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they're not going to kick us out. Sorry. Great. <laughs> this last question. Hi guys. Um, got a real quick question for both you. First to Travis. Um, it was mentioned in the film that uh, the trees that were around the um, the site where you were had your experience. Um, experienced this accelerated growth at the point which it happened. I'm just wondering, and it might be a personal question, um, did you ever notice that any of those experiences happened to you in terms of your growth as a, as a human mentally or physically um, afterwards, even up to today? And uh, just for um, Richard, um, what do you know about fleets of UFOs 
fleets? Fleets, as in multiple, not one or two or 10, but mm -hmm. 30, 40. Okay. I had an experience a few years ago where I saw many, 30 to 40 from skyline to skyline, and uh, hoping you could just expand on that a little bit. Well, with the tree growth, one thing that, you know, wasn't in there was that uh, uh, Ben Hansen did some follow-up research and discovered that the uh, pine trees in the vicinity of the Chernobyl uh, nuclear accident had, a, a, uh, they had done documentation that showed that they had accelerated growth in response to the radiation uh, exposure. So, um, um, when I got out of the truck, I left the door open, and the crewman that was sitting next to me was Ken Peterson. And uh, he uh, has now developed skin cancer on his right arm, the, the side nearest where the craft was coming from. So if there was some sort of uh, uh, <clears throat> healing process uh, done by the aliens for me, you know, they didn't have access to him to, to uh, protect him from the consequences. But uh, we did quite a bit of follow-up with uh, uh, various uh, instruments on the site. And, uh, you know, uh, I never wanted to be the bug in the jar, but uh, so I, I didn't report on some things because, for one thing, I was very concerned that there would be negative medical consequences. Uh, but that turned out not to be the case. And I waited until I could go into my employer's and uh, get the, uh, my attendance record to uh, prove it that I had not called in sick one time in 40 years. Uh, now, it could be a coincidence, you know, I try to live healthy, and, uh, uh, but as far as having negative consequences, there certainly wasn't any. Uh, relating to your question about fleets, I really thank you for that question because it's, it's another of these fascinating, it opens up this door to a lot of questions. So, for example, there are uh, a certain number of sightings over the years of what uh, appear to be fleets of UFOs. Uh, there's a really good one that's actually being reopened that took place in the little town of Farmington, New Mexico from 1950. Mm. And um, I think this is actually been turning out um, with a fresh investigation to be the real deal. Uh, over several days, an enormous number of objects seen over this, this remote area. And you get reports of this every now and then. So my, all I can say is when, when I think of fleets of terrestrial vehicles, they're, they're typically military. Mm -hmm. Like you see fleets <coughs> of aircraft uh, being seen that are usually military. And so I wonder if these are actual UFO fleets, are they engaged in a military operation? And if it's not that, then they're, they're definitely in a kind of very tight hierarchical kind of structure. It just makes me wonder, what is their infrastructure? They have to have an infrastructure if they're here. This is something that no one ever asks about. Like, what, what, do th what is their society like? What is their psychology like? Um, my feeling, I have a strong feeling on this. These things are seen all over the world. They're not just seen over human populations. They're seen in the most remote parts of the world. Remote parts of Canada in the Northwest Territories. I looked at a case from 1936. Northwest Territories, no one lives up there. There's ob there are objects up there. There, uh, just, I uh, was looking at a cases of, of dealing with Russia and the Arctic Ocean. Lots of sightings up there. There's nothing there. Sightings in these remote mountain regions. So there's an infrastructure that is global. They have an interest in the whole planet. And they must have their own civilization. They must have their own infrastructure. And, you know, damned if I know what that infrastructure is made out of, how it functions, what, do they use money? Do they, um, what, what do they do? I, I don't really know. And why are they doing it? I th you know, maybe they just live here, but if they do that, what are they doing? Mm -hmm. These are questions I just don't have an answer for, including why are there fleets? Yeah. Okay. Right. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, an evening like this just doesn't happen. It, it's planned well in advance. And I just want to take a moment to thank Chris for his, his fine work in putting this together. Great job, Chris. And, it, and, and, and someone who never gets enough recognition is his partner, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. She's always in, always in, the, back, in the background, but thank you very much. Hal to you and your kitchen crew and the sound people 
and the people who put this together here in this location. Thank you very, very much. You did a wonderful job. And to our two wonderful guests, speakers, people, thank you very much for putting yourselves out on this. Uh, you're, you're true warriors, uh, crusaders, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I think it's time that uh, the kinds of things you're talking about are listened to with more acuity, not just in the general public, but with the people who have the, these microphones on TV and on the radio to get the word out to the public. This, this is something that we need to talk about in an authentic, open way. And uh, it is okay to, to, uh, to talk about these kinds of things. So I want to thank you all for coming out this evening. Safe home, and uh, we'll see you again sometime. Thank you. Firefighter Raphael Poiriet for Firehouse Subs, introducing the new Firehouse Pub Steak Sub with savory steak, crispy fried onions, and our rich Belgian beer cheese sauce. On tap for a limited time. Order yours at firehousesubs.com today. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs will donate a minimum of $1 million in 2018 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.13% of every purchase.